Dr. Delphi Nieto Isabel holds a bachelor's degree in physics, a BA in history, an MA, and a PhD in medieval cultures from the University of Barcelona. She has been awarded a Marie Curie Individual Fellowship to carry out her research project Illiterate at Queen Mary University of London starting August 2022 and is currently working on her project Networks of Defiance, Women and Heretical Conversion in the Late Middle Ages. Whew. All right, I, I feel like I deserve some sort of a, <laughs> uh, Olympic gold medal. Uh, Dr. Nieto Isabel, welcome to Eurotrash. Hi, thank you. Thank you. Thanks for having me. A- absolute pleasure. Um, confession time. Sure. To my great shame, mm-hmm. I am practically illiterate when it comes to the subject of women's spirituality in the Middle Ages. So today will probably be a little bit all over the place and I'll bother you with all kinds of extremely basic questions, I'm afraid. But I believe this is a fascinating subject and I'm definitely here to learn. So I'm great. super excited that you are here. As you just uh, read, I'm all about illiterate people, so no worries. Just ask away and we'll do our best. Okay, let's start with the basics. Sure. What did the daily life of most women in medieval Europe look like? Broad strokes. How did they live? How did they die? Very broad strokes, because that's a, a very uh, complicated question and a very long answer. But We have time. Sure. I would say that uh, women in the Middle Ages and were, and this might be shocking, but in my opinion, were better off than women in the early modern period. All people who, all the people who work who work in the Middle Ages, know that our period has a really awful reputation for so many things, among others for the role of women and the situation of women in in everyday life. But actually, especially. In the earlier period, it was not as bad as people usually think. Women did absolutely everything that you can think of. There were intellectuals, there were women who read, there were women who wrote, and we have great examples of that, and I'm hoping we will be able to talk about that in, in the in the time we have together. But in general, of course, it was mostly, and we are talking about Western Europe because that's my field, so of course it was a patriarchal society. No surprises there. So obviously nothing resembling what we would call feminism. And this is something that I'm putting right out there because every time we see a female character doing something special in the Middle Ages, people start shouting, oh, she was the first feminist. And that makes no sense whatsoever because we need to understand that women in the period uh, saw themselves exactly as part of that patriarchal system. And that's why for them, some of the things that we modern women think uh, we have a right to do that wasn't even in their mindset. So that's something that, I'm again, I'm hoping we will be able to elaborate on. But uh, women worked. Women were represented in all aspects of society. There were women uh, in powerful positions. And of course, the situation was very movable and everything kept changing throughout the period. Because when we say Middle Ages, we are talking about a thousand years. And that's the first thing we should put right out there it's so right yeah we're talking from the fall of the western roman empire right yes to the this so-called uh this columbus <laughs> it's I'm, so I'm having trouble I'm, yeah because yeah, you know i was taught one thing in elementary school and it's stuck in my head and i know it makes no sense now 
Um, so you know what? The, the Columbus voyage, let's call the, it. The, the trouble you're having in defining the period, it's, it's great because that's the trouble we actually have defining the period. Okay. For starters, it's not the same everywhere. It could be argued that in Italy, the Middle Ages ended earlier than in other places in Europe because of the Renaissance. But also the thing uh, that you put right out there at the beginning of the period, the fall of the Roman Empire, that's also a debate that's going on right now. And we like to say the decline rather than the fall, because the fall makes it sound as if it was something that suddenly happened and everything you know, went really bad really fast. But that's not what happened. We are talking about two centuries, three centuries of a whole empire uh, declining and doing things that will mm, foster its, its, basically its end. But mm-hmm. um, again, it's not like you could go to bed one day in, in ancient history and wake up the following morning and, oh, now it's the Middle Ages. Surprise. No, that's obviously that's something that we historians use because it's convenient and it's easy and we need to put periods somewhere. But we could talk about late 5th century, approximately uh, early uh, 16th century. And I know some of my colleagues are going to go crazy if they hear this, but let's say that very, very roughly. In some periods, again, it's different. Uh, the What we could call the Middle Ages starts later and, and ends earlier on. But yeah, roughly, it's about a thousand years of history. Okay, That's why it's so unfair when we start like making uh, statements that are supposed to be valid for the whole period because that doesn't work ever in history. So, yeah. but yeah, let's talk roughly about the Middle Ages. Okay. Yeah. I remember we were taught like 476. They made us learn all these dates oh, yes. to 1492, yes. I believe. Right. Um, That's when the, the last Western Roman emperor is the post. For hundred seventy six. That's why that's that date stuck sticks with you. But yeah, follow up question. You talked about it a, re- a little bit already. Um, how strict were the social confines of gender roles back then? Like we have princesses and and duchesses and queens and stuff. I, I suppose. Mm-hmm. Um, but could a woman become, let's say, a warrior or a blacksmith? Um, you said that okay. they they were represented in all kind of occupations. I'm just you know, uh, wondering how far did that extend? Shall I explain that with a very, very simple example that I Please. think is pretty illustrative? So, because medieval studies have expanded so much and there are all sorts of uh, disciplines that are now involved in getting to know the period better. I remember once attending a, a paper by an archaeologist who was working uh, using anthropological methods. And one of the surprising results they were finding was that for a very long time, every time they found a tomb and there was a skeleton inside and there were swords with that skeleton or any kind of weapon, they immediately assumed, oh, this was a man, obviously. But then suddenly, they, uh, when anthropological methods came into play and DNA uh, analysis came into play, they started finding out that, oh, surprise, some of those skeletons that were found with weapons were actually women. And this is, for example, I'm thinking about excavation sites in, in the British Isles uh, connected to Norsemen and, you know, the uh, usually referred to as Vikings. And that's how they suddenly started wondering, well, maybe we have a, a huge misconception about what we are supposed to find. And we are writing history based on our prejudices and thinking, oh, well, if it's a weapon, then surely 
it's a man. And if it's a necklace, oh, obviously it's a woman. And we are learning that these things are not at all how uh, we should be working. And this is in progress, a work in progress. But I think right now we are getting very interesting results that are showing that women are not... um, the exception in most of the aspects of society and that we should take them into account. For example, as I said, when you think about manuscripts, right, and those beautifully illuminated manuscripts, and immediately you think of a monk uh, that's writing there and and painting and doing wonderful things in, in his scriptorium. But suddenly, oh, again, surprise, there are nuns who are doing that too, and some of them even sign their works. So um, we are reframing the whole question, I think, and we are finding out women like literally everywhere. And that's very interesting for us because, again, it, it, it shows how much we have been constructing history based on the framework of our own society. And when I say our own society, I'm not talking specifically about the 21st century, but uh, first half of the 20th century, 19th century. And we are framing the Middle Ages and other periods in the past, thinking about the structures that were like the norm and and more modern um, in a more modern European context. And that's um, that's been proven wrong. And we are trying to do better. And I think we are many people are succeeding in doing that. Um, but you did mention that it was still a patriarchy first and foremost. Oh yes, right? absolutely, absolutely. Okay, uh, what 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 did that mean? Well, for starters, when we are talking about Western Europe, again, it varies a lot depending on the region because when you have the influence of Germanic people, um, again, this word is also a misconception. But n- never mind. Let's let's. You said broad strokes, right? So, where in all the regions in Europe where there was a very important Roman presence for a very long time. Roma, Roman society was very, very patriarchal. I mean, women were like second-class citizens to a point they were never fully considered as adults in a way. And the Middle Ages inherits that. Inherits that repeatedly in the sense that we tend to think, oh, okay, so Rome falls and then here are the Middle Ages and there's that. But the thing is that Rome kept coming back because, uh, for example, roughly about the end of the 12th century and particularly um, from the 13th century onwards, Roman law comes back with a vengeance. And when Roman law comes back to the scene and it's spread throughout Europe by notaries and, and it's like sort of reincorporated into legal systems, it brings with it this whole patriarchal framework. And women start uh, losing rights in so many ways. I mean, again, this losing rights is a very modern way of talking, but you get what I mean. Yeah. So, and we see how throughout the period, starting in the early Middle Ages and then going all the way to the 15th and 16th centuries, women keep losing what we would call in the 21st century rights. And that's very much because of the legal framework that suddenly starts prohibiting them from doing things that they were able to do earlier on. Like I'm talking about inheritance laws. I'm talking about being able to, for example, have a trade and and be uh, the owners of that trade. And so those things change, again, a thousand years, right? But Roman influence is very prevalent in that sense and very mm, bad for women, if I may say so. Very That's simple. so odd because, you know, um, 
in my head, and I think mm-hmm. many of us feel like Rome was the oh, light, of course. Co- especially of course. compared. I'm sorry, I think that's a quote from the Gladiator. I apologize. <laughs> so, somebody says, you know, Rome is yeah, the light compared uh, to yeah. the barbarians, you know, and uh-huh. especially opposed to the Middle Ages, which are seen as this, you know, the Dark Ages as well, mm-hmm. you know. Uh, but you're telling me that at least up to, I think you said the 13th century, mm-hmm. actually women had more rights and then ancient Roman law came back with a vengeance. Yeah, let's state one thing. I mean, th- this idea you have of Rome being the light, um, yeah. gladiator aside, but it's a, a, an idea that many, many people share. And that's a great example of propaganda, if I may say so myself, mostly by Renaissance people, and even I should say Renaissance men. When the Renaissance comes about, I mean, the whole word Renaissance, it means rebirth, right? Yeah, in a good and way, always. Of course, but also saying, you know what, Rome, Greece, that was great, that was the age of enlightenment, that was the best that ever happened, and then it's us. But in the middle, we have this like Middle Ages. I mean, just think about the name, Middle Ages. It doesn't mean anything. It means it's in the middle. It doesn't say anything specific about the period. It just says, oh, classics, you know, Rome, Greece, and then Renaissance, which is also great. But in the middle, you know, this whole thousand years, it doesn't, are are not really important for anything. And so, and, and we have inherited this concept of Middle Ages and we sort of love it, but you have to think about how it started. And it started as something that was, you know, not relevant and usually bad. And don't get me started on the Dark Ages thing, because that, again, is based on a, a very specific period of history in a very specific region of, histo- of, of Europe, but it was not the norm anywhere else. And, for example, you have uh, there's a, a very interesting Renaissance in the 12th century, but also there's what we could call a Carolingian Renaissance in the 9th century. And also there were uh, periods right after the decline of Rome in the Iberian Peninsula that were great for culture and also uh, the Islamic influence. All sorts of things that were very powerful culturally and are sort of, you know, pushed under the rock because, you know, Renaissance, when we start doing things again, like the Romans and the Greek, that's amazing. And in the middle, yeah, we were just losing... um, are, are marbles in a way. But the thing is that, for example, um, I'm sure you probably have heard about the uh, scientific revolution of the 17th century. Did, yeah. We are talking yeah. Isaac Newton, yeah. um, Galileo, uh, all those names, right? That scientific revolution uh, sometimes appears as if it was, again, something that suddenly happened uh, despite the thousand years of darkness and ignorance. But actually... Um, we have examples in the 8th century of intellectuals saying, hey, the earth is a ball. It's not flat. And it's 9th century. And we have examples of people in the Middle Ages saying the earth moves around the sun and not the other way around. So actually, every scientific and cultural advancement that we can see so clearly in the early uh, modern period is born, has its roots in the evolution of those thousand years of history. So, uh, yeah, welcome to the Middle Ages. My mind is blown. Yeah, I, I, on this note, I personally had a little disillusionment when I realized or I read an article somewhere that these beautiful white marble statues from ancient Greece and Rome were actually painted in a very kitschy way. 
Oh, uh, yes. you know, and then the Renaissance thought that they weren't painted and they were just white and I was yeah. so sophisticated and so But classic. I have to say that's also the case for the Middle Ages because we're so used to see these amazing cathedrals and the, in the Romanesque period, smaller churches, but also great uh, cathedrals too. And then the Gothic cathedrals and we're used to see the naked stone with the color of naked stone and it's so elegant and so beautiful. But then um, lately some amazing work has been done on using like the study of the colors that you can still, the, the, the remains of color that you can still see in the stones with very modern scientific methods. And they are doing like reconstructions of the way in which things actually looked like. And honestly, to our modern taste, it's pretty awful. But that's probably because we're used to seeing it, you know, naked stone. And suddenly it's the same as with white marble, right? It's it's this beauty, this perfection. And suddenly it's like red and blue and green. And it's, oh my God, that's that's horrible. But yeah, that's that's our fault, not, not theirs. We're used to that. And our brain works that way. Okay, as far as church functions go, uh, mm -hmm. I know that women could probably be nuns and like abbesses and stuff. Mm -hmm. um, but other than that, at least probably within the Catholic Church, uh, it's not really possible for a woman to climb up the hierarchy more no. than that. I mean, to this date. Um, Very however, much as today. To, yeah, <laughs> yes. today, exactly, yeah. Um, however, while preparing for this interview, <laughs> I read a crazy story that there was a rumor that a female pope existed at one point. <laughs> You're I talking think about Popus pope John. John. Pope as John, yeah. Yeah. And that she got there by pretending to be a man until she gave birth to a child during mass. Is there yes. any credence to this pretty well, radical story? Just, just think about this. Uh, the story is of a woman that, by the way, is, for starters, she's illegitimate. And she's born from the illegitimate relation between a monk and a woman. So not great, not a great start. And then her greatest sin is that she's a very good intellectual. She's very clever. And she realizes that she cannot move uh, onwards in the hierarchy without, uh, while being a woman. So she basically dresses up as a man and start, but she, you know, takes it too far and she's so good that she ends up being elected as pope that's the story right and but of course and then and, and here comes the the punch because obviously since she since she's a woman and therefore incapable of any kind of sexual restraint because women are <laughs> lustful by definition obviously she has a lover and obviously she uh, ends up pregnant. And of course, she has the child in the middle of a procession in the streets. And there are different versions. One of them says that she's killed by the mob uh, when they realize that what's happening, the Pope is giving birth. So that's the story. But the, I, I hate to say, you, to say that it's made up because this was supposed to happen somewhere around the ninth century. 10th century at most, but the first report we have of this story is actually by a Dominican in the 13th century. That's the first time we hear about this story. Also like and 400 exactly, years later. Yeah, and it's obviously a warning against this is what happens when you let women uh, become intellectuals, and this is what happens when you let women go up too far. So it's a sort of cautionary tale against females being uh, ahead of themselves in the sense that they are you let them in and this is what happens uh, but of course the story is so great it could be actually a, a netflix show no <laughs> problem there 
that it's so successful that to this day, when you talk, I mean, with my students, for example, I talk to, you know, about Popus John and some of them who are, you know, like medieval history for starting on taking courses. They say, yes, of course, she was a female Pope. She had to dress up to become a Pope because otherwise it was forbidden because the story is so powerful. And it's the power of a story that that sometimes counts. But there was no such um, Popus John. I, I'm sorry to disappoint you. But as I said, the story is so good that it's, yeah, it's still out there today. So, Well, I'm personally disappointed, but Netflix is probably happy and excited. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so when and where do these first female mystics appear? And what is usually their message? If we oh. can boil it down to a common denominator, if oh, such a thing wow. exists. Uh, okay, common denominator. Again, we're talking about roughly 200 years of different women doing different things. But yeah, but let's say that I would mm, start counting, you know, late 12th century approximately. And uh, one thing that we need to understand is that this phenomenon of female mysticism is very much connected to another very interesting uh, phenomenon uh, that's called, well, the begins. I don't know if you've heard the word spelled B. E-G-U-I-N-E-S, begins. These women, uh, and that's actually the great novelty. Some of them ended up being mystics, but uh, the great novelty is that these women chose for themselves what we would call a third way, because women had to either get married or join a nunnery, a convent. Mm -hmm. These women chose differently. They decided not to get married. And nonetheless, they decided to lead a spiritual life but without doing so um, officially. They didn't take vows officially, so they were not officially, again, sanctioned by the church in any way. And they lived either by themselves or with, or with another companion on, or later on in larger groups of women and devoted themselves to a very interesting combination of contemplation, so spiritual contemplation, reading the scriptures, Debating the scriptures, writing themselves commentaries, and writing themselves about their experiences in the first person in many, many cases, but also to action. So they did not withdraw from the world in any way. They actually lived in cities and they took care of the sick, they took care of the poor, they took care of the dead, and they were very well integrated into urban society because they were very well respected. These women had a lot of charisma because of the way in which they chose to live. It was at some point when they are being praised in the early 13th century, people actually say it's harder to do this than to become a nun because when you become a nun, you remove yourself from any kind of temptation. You are living in a convent. But Abigail has, it, has a harder time removing herself because she lives in the middle of the city and still she manages to lead a very spiritual, very righteous, very pious life, but right in the thick of it, which is way more difficult than, you know, living somewhere um, far removed in the country, in the countryside, never seeing anybody. Um, so uh, this is the phenomenon of begins. This is a huge thing that happened starting, I would say, late 12th century and kept going on until most begins were forced into religious orders at the end of the Middle Ages and the start of the early modern period. And among them, several women became mystics to the point that when we talk about mysticism in the late Middle Ages, we have a few names that are men. I'm talking Meister Eckhart, 
um, which you probably know, uh, Henry Soise, which whom you probably know, but most of them were women to the point that we cannot say medieval, late medieval mysticism without talking about these women. So I'm somewhat reluctant to use the word female uh, medieval mysticism because in a way it's the norm and the men are the exception to a point. This is, of course, um, my opinion, but I think that it's it's more fair to just talk about medieval mysticism and to talk about these women. And if I had to say what they had in common, um, and again, that is a very complicated question, but I would say that they all aimed at a higher form of spirituality without the mediation of anybody. So the mystics looked for a connection with the divinity. And that's where the problem lies, because of course, if you think, oh, I don't need a mediator, who's the great mediator? between Christians and God, and it's the church, of course. And if you think that you can reach this connection with the divinity in several forms, but you don't need a priest to guide you, or you don't need, uh, sometimes in more extreme cases, even the sacraments, but I'm, I'm quickly uh, crossing the line into heresy. But anyway, if you think you don't need a mediator, that's a problem, because what's the role of the church if they cannot be, you know, in the middle, in between believers and God. So that's why Begins started out great, being a great success, being very respected, even from within the church. And in a matter of a century, they were under suspicion and they ended up, mm, uh, some of them, being burned at the stake in the 14th century already. So um, we see in the case of Begins, it's really interesting to see how this progression of how they start great, but then suddenly they became a threat because they cannot, they, they do not fit anywhere within the structures that the church has in place for women in particular. I just want to clear up one thing. You said hmm. that if you wanted to lead that kind of life as a woman that doesn't go to a nunnery and, you know, um, doesn't want to get married... Uh-huh. Um, you could become one of these women who were uh, very urbanized and lived in, in the middle of society and was serving uh-huh. others and stuff and were also scholars in a way, right? Yeah, many of them uh, were. They were studying the Bible and, and all of that mm-hmm. stuff. But was it necessary if you wanted to go down that path to also have visions? Or no. you could could you just be like a scholar and, and helping others and absolutely. you weren't possessed by any sort of uh, divine no, no, spirit? No, absolutely. Well, I, I wouldn't say they... I, I, they never used the word possessed, for starters. But, okay. but no, you didn't need to have visions. Those were, like in a way, the privileged ones in the sense that their connection with the divinity was stronger. But many mm-hmm. of, these women's who, of these women who did have visions ended up as sort of de facto leaders of, of communities of other begins that um, approached them because of their example. And they were particularly pious and particularly, again, blessed by the divinity. And that's why they attracted um, this following, we could say. But mm, many begins did not have visions at all. They were all very spiritually committed. Mm-hmm. So they would read the scriptures and they would debate about the scriptures and they would talk about God which again was a problem because that was not a sanctioned way of talking about God, but uh, they did not have to have visions, all of them. I mean, most of them didn't, obviously. What did these women who were connected to divinity, what did they describe in their visions? The ones that did have them. Is that like super varied or is it a common theme? Oh, yes. There's 
and actually you can sort of see, I wouldn't go as far as to say schools, but we usually, when we talk about mysticism, we talk again about periods and we see different trends that are in, that some of them have in common and that keep changing over time. But many described sort of the theme of the stair towards uh, a ladder to heaven, if you will, that's uh, very common. We can talk about trees. We can talk, I mean, I probably you've heard because this is one of the most famous one famous ones Hildegard uh, von Wingen yeah um which uh, she was a visionary but she was so many more things apart from the visionary and she has this amazing manuscripts the ones that have been preserved and and that we are still able to to see in a way she has these wonderful images of the universe and this sort of what we could call the cosmic almond which very much resembles a vagina and um, the the thing that you can see the cosmos in there, you can see the stars, you can see all sorts of very, very colorful and vivid images. And that's interesting because then again, for example, when we are talking very, um, very much later, Julian of Norwich, she's talking about Jesus's mother. Some of the women I'm studying in the 14th century, they are talking about how the wound and Christ's side is the access to uh, the heart of, of Christ and they are seeing through that wound, they are seeing a sort of lantern with the heart of, uh, of Christ in, in, inside the lantern. They are seeing the Trinity. You see all sorts of visions related to the Trinity, all sorts of apocalyptic visions too, depending on the period and depending on the woman. So there's a huge variety of narrative images. That's how we uh, describe them. Uh, that these women show, because of course the different vision, I mean, the di- different visionary experiences very much depend on the context of that individual. To put this in a, in a very simple and very... Yes, please. Well, well, if you were to have visions, you would have visions that talk about your own references. You're, I mean, if you're German, it's difficult you'll have visions that have uh, cultural issues that only happen in a very remote part of China. That's not how it works. I mean, your visions, and, and I'm not talking about the divine inspiration, and I'm not questioning that at all, because that's not my job. But as historian, as a historian, my job is to understand why the visions are having this specific elements that have a lot to do with the social, the cultural, the religious context of each and every person. That's why uh, every visionary has its her, her own thing going. But again, we can see some common trends and that's what's interesting because how come this woman who had this vision in Southern France in the 14th century uh, was having much of the same things that were actually happened to other visionaries in Northern Italy a couple decades before that. So that's that's the interesting threads that as historians we like to uh, pursue when possible. These days, the talk of the town are psychedelics. Everything from oh, DMT, yes. you know, mushrooms, LSD. Uh-huh. And I believe, maybe I'm completely off the mark here, but mm-hmm. I read somewhere that it's pretty much established that, for example, in Delphi, in ancient Greece, the oracles were inhaling some sort of fume, getting a little bit high, you know, when delivering mm-hmm. their prophecies. Uh, did any of these mystics in medieval Europe also kind of help themselves with any sort of enhancements? 
that's that's very interesting because just uh, last year I spent a year at the Center for the Study of World Religions, and uh, the director there, Charlie Stang, he's sort of leading this initiative to discuss psychedelics and religion. And he actually talked a lot about uh, ancient Greece and uh, how that worked there. But to be fair, for medieval Europe, we don't, and specifically for these women, we don't have any proof or evidence that suggests that they were helping themselves out by using uh, any kind of psychoactive drugs that um, sort of prompted these visions. But there are other ways of prompting visions. For example, fasting is a great way of prompting visions. I and mean, then just try to fast for, I don't know, two weeks and see what happens. Afterwards. Oh, okay. I, uh, coincidentally, so, I just started on this 16-8 uh, <laughs> intermittent fasting because I'm trying to lose weight. But okay, you said a couple <laughs> of days before I receive visions. Well, if you try to do that for 40 days, then start having visions, you'll just let me know. But what I mean is that there are so many other things that can inspire visions and not you don't really need psychoactive drugs all the time of course that makes things easier but um what we know of medieval mystics is that they were very committed to ascetic practices not just fasting but also some of them self-flogged themselves and were very extreme in their physical exercises let's call it that and that also has a physical response and a cognitive response. But again, I wouldn't like to sound as if I was dismissing the whole spiritual aspect of these visions, because another thing that was uh, known as a prompt for visions was, uh, especially from a certain point onwards, was contemplating the passion of Christ. So these images of the passion that were more and more explicit as uh, the centuries um, went by uh, with the blood and all the torture and all the the things that the, the physical torments that Christ had been uh, subjected to they were a great inspiration and many of these women reenacted the passion constantly I mean mentally they were read the passion already themselves while watching these very explicit images that were very moving and and that obviously had a saying in what happened afterwards, because many of them actually say that their vision started upon seeing this crucifix or upon seeing this depiction of the passion. Or um, And this is not just for women. Men also um, had this kind of experiences, some of them. So it's not just about psychoactive drugs, of course, but other many other experiences that are have a lot to do with the senses, actually, and with perception, with physical perception, and they can prompt this kind of experiences. But again, we are talking about very spiritually committed people. I mean, people who were strong believers and were very sure that what was happening to them uh, was God talking to them. And I would like to stress that that's something that we need, because from the 21st century, it's very easy to dismiss that. From our very secular Europe, right, this is not I have to say, not so easy in the United States, but in Europe, or very secular Europe, it's it makes it so easy to think, oh well, because they, you know, they had some sort of mental disorder, or were taking drugs, or or were fasting, and that's why they had these visions. And I wouldn't like to sound like that at all, because for them it was very real, and it was very much something that was not. Mm, strange that was not a fantasy that was very much in line with with what could be expected in the framework of society of course it was not the norm not everybody had visions but what i mean is that these people were very spiritually committed and that's something that we need to remember we cannot 
detach that from their experience, obviously. One of the most fascinating people of all time, probably, I'm sure you get as this a lot, is, of course, Joan of Arc, the patron oh. saint of <laughs> France. I have to ask you about this. Um, her story seems like something out of an anime or like a comic book. It's pretty crazy. So at the time, the French, I think, were losing the Hundred Years' War to the English mm -hmm. quite badly. And then a countryside girl comes along saying she's receiving visions and that she should be entrusted with the entire French army. So there's these battle-hardened captains and generals and marshals all over the place from this long war. But the king actually says, okay, let's do this. I mean, even for medieval, I mean, for medieval Europe, this sounds like an extreme gamble for somebody, mm -hmm. you know, maybe of somebody who's had a bit too much to smoke or drink. I mean, <laughs> why do they go along with this absolutely insane plan? Were the French really that desperate or did they believe in, in her visions straight away? What well, was, or was there I, I something say, else in the background? I would say both. In the case of Joan of Arc, there's a lot of things that uh, can be factored in. One of them is political. Obviously, the French were pretty desperate. That's, that's something that we know. But again, the religious motivation is something that for us, I think, has become harder and harder to understand and to think, as you say, well, it's a pretty big of a gamble just thinking, oh, she's having visions, so what, right? But in the Middle Ages, that counted for something. And she was inspired by God and she was seen as inspired by God. And that had a lot of weight with a lot of people. And that's... The fact that, as you just said, a woman was able to lead armies and people were okay with it, at least for a while, uh, shows how much divine inspiration counted in the period. And I think that helps it helps us understand the period way better. But another interesting thing about Joan of Arc is that if you would ask, because mostly everybody, I think, has heard her name and they would be able to say something or other about her. But if you ask people why she was killed, why she was executed, I'm not sure everybody would be able to answer that question. I'm I'm afraid to ask you, but do you if I ask you, what would you say? Well <laughs> all of I my, hate to put you on the spot, my, but no 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 please do. I love it. Uh, all of my Knowledge comes from like pop culture. So I remember okay. seeing that movie with Mila Jovovich, I think, yes. by Joan of Arc. And I mm -hmm. remember that the English and the Burgundians, I don't even yes. know if you say it that way, captured her and that actually she was burned at the stake as a heretic. Uh -huh. Uh -huh. That's where I'm going. Yeah, most of the people, because we sort of everybody knows that she had visions. And uh, we've seen the movies, and usually in the movies she's presented as, oh, is she talking to the devil? Uh, I seem to remember yes. it's Dustin Hoffman there. Exactly, uh, so is, yes, is yes, he, yes. Is he God? Is he the devil? What, what, what are we seeing here? And everybody will say, oh, she was burned as a heretic. And then they will say, well, but she was not a heretic. The thing is that she, it was a politically manipulated situation, and actually she was like forgiven officially very early uh, for the period. But the thing is that she was not burned at the stake uh, uh, as a heretic. She was burned, and, and get this, for cross-dressing. So the final charge was that she was dressed as a man. And that's why it's so fascinating. And, and because one thing that's happening right now is that, thankfully, we are also crossing gender barriers in the way we study the past. So it's not just about men and women anymore. And um, 
performative roles that men and women are supposed to have and are supposed to have had in the past. But we're also talking about people that were doing things that were they were not supposed to be doing according to the social framework. And lots of people are doing queer history, which is really interesting and it's shedding light on all these things. And especially Joan of Arc is one of these characters that is really interesting for the study of what happens when we are crossing gender barriers and doing things that we are not supposed to be doing. And even in the end, despite everything that had happened and despite everything that she had done, I mean, the French sort of relinquished her and to, to, the, to the English because of very complicated political reasons. But basically, they did nothing to save her. And the final charge was not that she was a heretic, was that she was dressed as a man. And it's so interesting because it tells us so much about the period. And and I think it's important to keep reminding people that, you know, Joan of Arc, well, she was burned at the stake because she was dressed as a man. Okay. But she was dressed as a man because she was a warrior? or Because I remember reading somewhere that... She dressed as a man in prison after the English captured her to kind of... Yeah, there's there's a lot about that because then there's the argument that's the only clothes she was given. And, and maybe... And at some point, I think that they say, oh, we gave her these clothes and these clothes and she chose to be dressed as a man instead of be, being dressed as a woman. But it's that that's the, the same issue, right? So it's 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 really interesting as a... As a figure. I mean, this uh, this whole story is just. I still don't understand how somebody with no military experience whatsoever leads like an army of knights and oh, yes. wins a series of battles at like sixteen or something. It's just yeah, uh, quite mind-boggling. That's that's why it's it's a, again a, such a powerful story and tells us so much about the role of divine inspiration in the Middle Ages. I mean, can you imagine now? Someone going to the president of a modern European country, or well, a modern country anywhere. Well. Yeah, I shouldn't say this, but let's say European country to make it easier, right? And hey, I'm 15. I know nothing about anything, but God talks to me and I will command your armies. I mean, that's not even, that's not something you can think like would ever happen. But that's because our whole framework has changed. And that's why it's so interesting to study these examples in the past, because it's not just about the example or what Joan did or what Joan was or how she felt, but it tells us so much about the society in which she lived. And that's the same for all these women we've been talking about uh, for the last few minutes. I mean, they all are very interesting as people in themselves, but they are so interesting for historians because they tell us so much about the context in which they lived and which in a way make them possible. Um, Back to medieval mystics. Mm -hmm. Say you were a woman um, who reported seeing visions from above or below or whichever Uh it was. Um, How did the medieval church... Always above. Always always above. above. Never of hell? Never Mm -hmm. like I'm seeing Mm -hmm. some sort of hellish Mm -hmm. landscape? Yes, yes. You would see hellish. But the vision would never come from the... Uh That's what I I mean. mean, That would mean that you're in in cahoots with the devil, right? That's the thing. Okay. Uh, How did medieval church go about verifying the legitimacy of your claims? Well, it depends. Again, it depends on the period. And it depends, uh, for example, if we're talking early 13th century, you'd have a lot of supporters. We're talking about second half of the 12th century. Again, Hildegard, she has supporters, but she's never treated as a heretic. There's never that kind of suspicion looming over her. Basically, they would look at your way of life. Are you a pious woman? Are you a righteous woman? 
and about your claims when you go into a, a rapture is that uh, can we trust the rapture? Are there witnesses? What kind of experiences are you describing? And depending on that, and also who supports you, uh, if you have supporter within the hierarchy of the church, let's say a bishop or an archbishop, an abbot, a famous abbot, let's talk Bernard of Clairvaux, for example, then you're good to go. But then l let me talk about a case of a woman that's uh, I'm sure a handful of people know about her. Her name is Grigsendis, and she lives in Narbonne in southern France in the late 13th century, and she has raptures. And she has raptures, and she sees purgatory. And I'm sorry, um, sees... I have to stop you here. I, I told you yeah. I'm illiterate at the beginning. So when you say they have raptures, that means oh, yeah. they go to she heaven? She goes into or? ecstasies. No, well, depending depending on, on the case. But some you, you lose consciousness of the place you're in. You go into a sort of a hypnotic, uh, ecstatic experience. And you're not anymore in your room or in your um, church or in whatever you are. You are transported in very different ways, but somewhere else. And you see things and hear things and touch things and smell things. All the senses are there, but not in the place where your, your physical body is. Got so it. that's a rapture. Okay. Or ecstasies, if you want, and, and sort of ecstatic experience. So uh, this woman, Rick Sanders, uh, goes into raptures and she sees purgatory and she sees her parents in purgatory and she uh, is given a letter from St. John and she does all sorts of things while she's in a rapture, right? And she gathers a following around her because in the town, and this is normal, you hear about this person who leads a pious life and she's having contact with the divinity and she's getting messages from the divinity. Of course, you want to see what's that about. And she gathers a following. I'm talking about 30 people around her who uh, witness her raptures and the things she uh, tells them afterwards. And this gets to the ears of the Archbishop of Narvon, and she is called before the court to testify about that because she is considered to be a false visionary. And actually, we have the records of that. And you see how she had a rapture in front of the judges. And the judges did not believe that she was actually having a rapture. She, they thought she was faking it. How or why? What were they considering? It's difficult to say, but I would very much say that it depends on the case. It also depends on the reputation of the woman, and it also depends on the period in history. Because as I said, this is late 13th century, and things have changed a lot since the early 13th century. And begins are being more and more considered as a dangerous threat because they are difficult to situate within the, the established frameworks of the church. And so it very much, if you ask me, If this woman had done this thing, but, you know, 80 years before, what would have been the outcome? And I would guess mm, probably very different. So the way in which the authorities went about this, again, depended very much on the, um, well, I now I'm, I'm going to bring my own thing into the, the conversation, but it very much depends on the position in the social networks in which they were embedded depending on their social capital, we would say in a very modern way, and how respected they were and how well connected they were with the power. So so what happened to her in the end? Did they... Um... We don't know, but probably she either ended up in prison or uh, were 
course, burned at the stake. I'm leaning towards in prison because we don't have records. I mean, we just have the first part of the trial. We don't have the sentencing. But in her case, and being that period and that area, we would probably know if she had been burned at the stake. So Okay, so it was possible, like, if, for example, if the church found your claims aren't holding water in their uh-huh. eyes, could you simply... If you wanted, I mean, assuming you wanted to kind of survive and not go out in glory, could you simply backtrack and say, hey, I got a little bit carried away or, you know, I did it for the fame. I'm sorry. Can you let me go? Or were they immediately like, you're a witch, you're getting burned at the stake? Well, the the witch thing, we'll get back to that a bit later, I hope. As for the first part, yes, absolutely. You could recant. You could say, basically, uh, I was wrong. I was misled. I thought it was God talking, but apparently it was not. And then from now onwards, I'll behave and I'll follow to the letter of the law what the church says and what my priest says. You could, of course, go down that way. And then you would not be immediately released. You would probably be sentenced to imprisonment. And probably after a sometime in prison you would be pardoned or your sentence would be commuted for something else and you would be closely monitored to make sure that your um, confession was like honest and you actually had seen the 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 error of your ways but the interesting thing is that many of these women especially and men too but women especially refused to recant and to save themselves even when they um could. Uh, for example, one of my favorite visionaries, her name is now Prose Boneta. She lived in the early, late 13th century, early 14th century in, in Montpellier in southern France. And at some point in front of the inquisitors, um, another word that we haven't mentioned, she says, I don't care. You are saying that I'm wrong and you want to condemn me, but you know what? My message comes from God. And his authority is way higher than yours. So it doesn't matter. And she explicitly says, if you want to burn me at the stake, because I'll be saved in paradise, because I'm following what God tell me, tells me to do. So I'm okay. And But then again, we have in the other end of the spectrum, so to, so to speak, we have another very famous mystic, Marguerite Poret. She lived in northern France, also early 14th century. And uh, she wrote a book. And the book was condemned. It's a, it's a long story. But anyway, in the end, she the book was burned and she wrote it again and started circulating it again. So um, basically, she was disobedient and she was brought to trial because of that book. And she refused to say a word during the year and something that she was in prison waiting for a sentence. She didn't utter a single word to any of her captors or her judges. And she simply said, I'm above this. I'm, I'm, I don't care what you do. And she didn't talk. And she, again, just as the, the, the first one I was talking about, they were both burned at the stake. But you, I like to put their, these examples together because they show you like two completely different stances in the sense that Naprose talked and talked and talked. Her confession is so long. And Marguerite decided not to say a single word, but the outcome was the same and the message was the same. I don't recognize your authority because my uh, message comes from God. So that's... So that's the last thing they probably want to hear, right? Yes, obviously. Because it was all a matter of authority. Are you recognizing my authority or not? And and they were not, uh, obviously. 
I'm reading this novel called Wolf Hall. I don't know if you've heard of it. No. Okay, it's um, it's it, it won a bunch of awards. It's about Thomas Cromwell, who was oh. one of the advisors of Henry VIII. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's a historical uh, novel, obviously. And a mystic appears, who happens to be female. Uh-huh. And uh, I think she was a historical person, uh, but I, for, I her name escapes me right now. I, I went on Wikipedia later and did a little cheeky search. Uh-huh. But I don't know if that's accurate, at least in the novel. She said that she's seeing that Henry VIII, if he marries Anne Boleyn, who wasn't his wife at the time, if he marries her, then he'll be dead within seven months or something. And then later on, when she was brought to trial, she recanted everything. Uh, she's like, uh, you know, the, the, the priests make me do it. I was making a lot of money because mm-hmm. of this. It was kind of like a nice racket. But they still, they they kind of burn her at the stake. Okay. It seems pretty ruthless, even though she recants everything. So that's why I was asking. Oh, okay. Well, I have to say that you're talking Henry VIII. That's way too yeah. modern for okay. my taste. All right. But then <laughs> again, um, there's different rules, right? Because we're talking about a moment in which uh, Henry VIII uh, recognizes himself as the only uh, church authority and breaks away with the Pope, right? So the, the rules are, there's a different set of rules and it's a very ruthless period of history, I would say. And of course, I, I don't know about this novel and I'm, um, I would like you to, to send me the, the reference because I'm, I'm interested in reading about it. But of course, in this kind of accusation and without knowing any more about it, we're talking political issues. And of course, in that moment, and I'm guessing that's where the, uh, the author goes with it, Henry VIII is very insecure in his position and he needs to justify why we don't follow the Pope anymore. And any criticism of his marriage with Anne Boleyn and, and his, you know what, I'm married, legally married, ecclesiastically married with this woman, but I'm basically divorcing her because I'm, I want to do something else. She needs, he needs legitimacy. And of course, any, anyone who seemed to um, contest that legitimacy would put themselves in, in, in trouble. And pardon was not um, a possibility in, in this sense. But again, we are here talking about political issues and again about an issue of power. There's also a lot of literature written on, on why Marguerite Perret, the woman I was talking about, was burned at the stake at that moment. And, and it also has a lot to do with the political context of the period. So we also need to take those reasons into account, not only religious reasons. Okay, let's go. Let's get to the big W that we already mentioned, and the I as sure. well, which is an Inquisition. Uh-huh. What do we get wrong? What do we get, if anything, right here? Okay, so um, let's start Inquisition. And it's interesting that you said big I, because actually in the Middle Ages, during well, Inquisitors first appear in the twelve thirties. Okay, let's let's start there, and basically they appear as a last resort because the church has been trying to deal with this massive popular heresy, so-called popular heresy, and heresies in the plural, that are appearing all over, you know, southern France, northern Iberia, northern Italy, and they are very much posing a threat to the authority of the church. They try everything they can think of. They try bishops, they try preaching campaigns by Cistercians, they even try a crusade in Christian territories in the early 13th century, the Albigensian Crusade, and it doesn't work. And people still keep adhering to these non-sanctioned beliefs. And uh, I think very much as a last resort, the Pope creates this office, the Office of the Inquisitor, 
And what it's interesting and it's important to say is that it's not the Inquisition, it's the Inquisitors. So it's not, because when you say Inquisition, you think about this organization uh, with lots of bureaucracy and a very well-structured hierarchy and um, probably a building somewhere. And Yeah, like a, like a KGB of the medieval period. Yes, yes. And yeah. in this early period, that's not it at all. What you have is uh, a few guys who are appointed as inquisitors. So, for example, let's say you're in Berlin, right? So let's yeah. say that around Berlin, there's suspicion that there's a heretical group and you happen to be a Dominican. And the Pope talks to you and says, hey, you know what? I'm going to appoint you as inquisitor for Berlin. And then you go there and you inquire into the issue. Okay? So that's an inquisitio because inquisitio means literally an inquire. And that's what an inquest, if you will. And that's what inquisitors do. They usually work in pairs and they travel whatever there's an issue and suspicion of heresy. And they try to suss out suspects and to interrogate people and to see what's what and to punish those who deserve punishment. And So pretty much like detectives a little bit. Yeah. Um, and also like uh, public officials in a way. They yeah. are appointed by the Pope. And what's new about them is that they are invested of papal authority. That means that. Because in the Middle Ages, jurisdictions were very strict. And you were, uh, if you're in the county of I don't know what, you are under the authority of the count of I don't know what. And if you are under the authority of the king of France or the different um, structures of power. But these inquisitors had a special power, so to speak. And they could cross boundaries, jurisdictional boundaries. So because you were, you had, you were a representative of papal power, you could go into the domains of the Count of Toulouse and say, hey, I'm here representing the Pope, and therefore I have authority to do whatever I want in this territory uh, to judge, well, whatever I want, to judge heresy. And that brought a lot of issues because, of course, secular powers were all against that, even bishops at some point, because it's, hey, this is my jurisdiction. What are you doing here? I know you. And you come here and say you have the power, and you don't. So that's an issue. I mean, it's it's not like inquisitors were welcomed everywhere and, hey, we're happy you're here, right? And the problem is that it's so interesting to see how, for people, the problem were inquisitors. And when I say inquisitors, I say these two guys who came into town, that they thought, well, we killed them and the problem is over, right? Because they travel in a donkey and they have their archives with them in manuscripts in the donkey. So if I burn the archives and kill the inquisitors, the problem is solved. And that happened to the point that the structures of power started thinking, you know what, let's do it differently. And then they started putting inquisitors in convents and safe places. And suddenly it was not the inquisitors traveling to a place where something was happening. But if you learned that something was happening there, you summoned the people from that place to the convent of the Dominican convent of Toulouse, for example. And the inquisitors were kept safe inside. That's part of thing. That's how it starts. And you had different inquisitors appointed for different regions. That's the thing. And during the Middle Ages, these inquisitors sort of were coordinated in the sense that they mostly used the same procedure and they used the same um, way of communicating and they used the same rules, so to speak, and they did more or less the same things and they talked among each other. But this was not a formally established, very clear-cut institution with very strict norms. That was uh, that's something that happened later on, end of the 15th century, when we start talking about Spanish Inquisition, and this one with a capital I, 
things change dramatically. But during the Middle Ages, we mostly have inquisitors rather than inquisition. And when we say inquisition in the Middle Ages, we are not talking about an institution. We are talking about the process, the inquest, the judicial inquest. That's the inquisitio. That's the first one. Also, let me say this. Although there was torture in some cases, and we have it documented, there are many medieval inquisitors who are very much against torture. And they have this great argument that I think modern politicians in countries I will not name should uh, have in mind when they think about torturing people. And um, I'm going to quote Bernardi, uh, one of the inquisitors I work with on a daily basis almost. At some point, he says, it makes no sense to torture people because when you torture someone, they will tell you whatever you want to hear. And this is not why we are here. As inquisitors, we want the truth. And we won't get the truth if you like force someone to say something against their will by flogging them or doing all sorts of awful things to them. So this is a 14th century argument that, you know what, I mean, should be kept in mind. That's about inquisitors, about witches. For starters... Okay, the... wait, I, I just just a little sure. bit. So um, you, you gave an outline of inquisitors before everything becomes like this massive institution, if it ever becomes the institution. But what about this capital inquisition? Oh, the, yeah. The Spanish well, Inquisition in Torquemada or whatever. Yeah, I don't know yeah that's the famous that, right? one, right? Just, just briefly, if you can. Uh, again, when of... the Inquisition appears, depends uh, with, with the capital, I mean, it depends uh, very much on the, on the regions. For example, the one that has the most awful reputation, I would say, is the Spanish Inquisition. But you had Roman Inquisition, which was also terrible. The Inquisition in Venice was also terrible. You have Inquisitions in different places in Europe. And again, depending very much on the region. And these Inquisitions, what they have uh, in common, for example, in the case of the Spanish Inquisition, it's very much related to royal power. So it has a lot to do with um, Isabel and Fernando, the Catholic monarchs, who have a lot to do with the establishment of the tribunal of the Holy Inquisition, as it is called in, in Iberia. Yeah, because that's another thing. It shouldn't be called Spanish, probably. It's fair to say, you know, Iberian Inquisition, but nevertheless. You have Inquisition in Aragon, you have Inquisition in Castile. And the thing here is depending on the who's the subject of the inquest. Because, for example, in the case of the so-called Spanish Inquisition, a huge thing, a huge theme were the conversos. Those were Jews that had been forced to convert to mm-hmm. Christianity, but then their conversion was not a truthful conversion or it was not a very convincing com- conversion. And then they went back to their ways and went back to being Jews in their daily lives. And uh, that was the great target of Spanish Inquisition because that was a great concern. You know, th- there was the expulsion of Jews in 1492 from the Iberian Peninsula, well, from, from the kingdoms of Isabel and Fernando. And of course, after that, what were known as crypto-Jews were uh, persecuted. That meant conversos, so people who had converted, but falsely converted. That was a huge theme in, in for Spanish Inquisition, for example. But some other Inquisitions had other issues. For example, when the Reformation started, Inquisi- the Inquisition of different places have a lot to say about that, obviously. And uh, Protestants, are, as, as they were they would be soon come to be known, were a huge target too. That's that's the other thing. But following up on that and linking it to the topic of witches, yeah. surprisingly, uh, for first I would say that um, we don't really like to talk about witches 
and it's not accurate, we should talk about women accused of witchcraft. Yeah, or men accused of, witch of witchcraft. Basically, yeah. because let me say this publicly, witches did not exist. Let me say this loud and clear. Which makes it even more jarring because some of the attempts that have been made lately to reclaim the concept of witch and say, hey, you know, the, let's, let's move beyond the Middle Ages, okay? Let's go to the trials in Salem, the famous trials in, in America. Salem. Yes. Yeah. It's, let's, you know, save the reputation. You know what? They were good witches. They weren't bad. No, they weren't witches, period. And why I think it's important to say this, because it's even worse if they weren't anything like that. Because basically what you're saying is that these were innocent women who did nothing wrong. They helped the na their neighbors. Sometimes they knew stuff about herbs and how to help a woman uh, during childbirth or how to help cure some illness that the cattle had. And some they have this knowledge and traditional knowledge passed from mother to daughter over generations, over centuries sometimes. But suddenly when something went wrong in the community, for example, there was a famine or there was an, an illness that could not be explained, some sort of epidemic that, for example, killed children, which was fairly common. You need to blame someone. And they were scapegoats in the sense that they were like the weakest link of the network. They, these women usually had uh, little to no family connections. They, sometimes they were old women who lived by themselves and they were easy targets for persecution. So these were women who were accused of witchcraft and not witches. That's the first thing. So then when we start finding these accusations late second half 15th century, you find these accusations more frequently in valleys, for example, in remote areas. And I have um, my friend, Dr. Pau Castell, has worked a lot on the earliest witch trials, uh, witchcraft trials in, in Catalonia, for example. But the thing is that something, again, probably unexpected. The best chance for these women was to get to the Inquisition. And now you can be baffled by this. Why? Why? Because inquisitors did not believe that women could go through walls or fly at night in broomsticks. So, because inquisitors were, I'm, of course, you always, um, I try to walk on tiptoes here, but they were rational in the sense that they had a very good formation, intellectual education. They were very strong on this. For them, it made no sense that a woman could walk through a crack in the wall. Because those powers were reserved for God. No human could do that. And at first, in the early period of the accusations, inquisitors did not believe these accusations. And if a woman could actually travel, escape the jurisdiction, the secular jurisdiction where she was being judged as a witch, and escape and get to a bigger city and appear in front of the inquisitor, most of the time she managed to save herself, basically because the accusations were dismissed. And that's the other interesting thing about witchcraft and how it is so different from heresy in the sense that heresy is an accusation that comes from above. The Pope, the ecclesiastical hierarchy tries to push this accusation on people and to convince people that, hey, heretics are bad and you should denounce them. But it's the other way around for witches because the accusation in that case comes from the community, which makes it so awful. It's your own community turning against you for something you have not done simply because they need to blame someone for some mm, terrible thing that has happened. 
So that's that's basically it. And then, of course, it goes crazy. It's it's why it's called the witch craze in in the early modern period when everything goes haywire and people start being hanged. That was, by the way, the the most usual punishment for for witches was uh, hanging, not the stake. They were usually mm-hmm. hanged and then burned, whereas heretics were burned alive. That's sort of the difference if you want to, you know. You're right. It it sounds very counterintuitive that if yeah, you were accused of witchcraft, you would run straight to the Inquisition. Uh, I haven't heard that before, to be honest. Uh, I wanted to ask something else, but I, I think I forgot now. Mm-hmm. Um, oh, yeah. I wanted to ask um, these kind of accusations of people reporting on each other, usually on the most vulnerable as you said, w- was this happening throughout medieval uh, period or is no, this something actually, that also comes later on? Actually, as I said, in the case of heresies, the accusations are usually from above and you see uh, people being reluctant to denounce each other. And when that happens, because we have some cases, it's usually uh, somebody that hates somebody else and presents them as a heretic in front of the inquisitors to try and get them blamed for it. But usually they get found out and false test- giving false testimony is also punished by inquisitors. But in the case of uh, the accusations of witchcraft, as I say, we, we see how the paradigm changes in the sense that the, the whole process of persecution starts within the community which is the most important difference with the persecution of heresy. In the persecution of heresy, the process of persecution never starts with the community. It always starts from above and drains down, so to speak, on the community. But in the case of witchcraft, it's an accusation that comes from within the community. And that's what makes it so terrible in the sense that it's people turning on each other in a moment of, of hardships uh, all over the place. That's, that's, that's the case. Wasn't there like a manual for discovering people who You're talking about the Malleus Maleficarum? Yes, the hammer. Yes, yes, exactly. The hammer, which is... Yes, was yes. Was that so like an official official document? Well, or was that just m- some guy who was like... No, no, this, more or less. More or less, it was at okay. some point used officially. But there were all sorts of, of manuals. But that's a later period when witchcraft is firmly established as a crime, which is not during the medieval period. It's not yet happening. It happens a bit later on. And then you have, for example, this infamous figure of the witch hunter, which is someone who allegedly can uh, single out witches on site. And we have examples on this in, in, in Catalonia, for example, I'm thinking. And oh, so that actually happened. Oh, yes. Women would be, well, everybody would be forced to uh, be on the streets in front of their houses. And then the witch hunter would walk down the street and look at everybody and suddenly identify you as a witch. And that that could not be appealed. And usually the coincidence is that they would single out women who were vulnerable, again, who had no social standing whatsoever and were easy targets. And these guys, some of them came into trouble when they, by mistake, identified as a witch someone who was very well connected. Because then things changed and the whole scenario was different because you had support, you had social support, you had political support sometimes. And then it was the only case in which the witch hunter was proven wrong because, of course, you had someone to defend you. So in the end, it's basically about social standing. It's basically about social connections, about social networks. That's why I'm so interested in how they worked in the period. As a so-called witch hunter, how did you get, where did you get your authority from? Who believed you? Some of them had some sort of clerical orders. So they had some sort of very elementary training 
as would be priests, and they are usually very shady figures uh, with very shady backgrounds. Surprise, that, surprise. Yeah, but it was a, I mean, it was a good business for a while. That's the thing because it relied on people mistrust of each other, especially in a period of difficulties. So that that's the sad part that it relies very much on human conditions. So when do uh, mystics in this medieval sense start to disappear, and why? Oh, wow. They don't disappear. That's the thing. They okay. uh, walk right into the early Unexpected. modern period. Yes. When uh, you talk about, for example, one of the few female doctors of the church, St. Teresa of Avila, who's Spanish, Teresa, she is a female mystic, a very important female mystic, and who cannot be understa- understood in a way without the whole tradition of female mystics before her. But in the same period, we have Juan de la Cruz, who, who's also, I mean, they, they know each other, they're good friends. And he's also sort of a heir to this uh, medieval tradition of visionaries. So mysticism does not disappear. The thing is that it's it, it transforms, of course, and it has a lot to do. For example, in the case of women, as I said at some point earlier, women who were uh, classified as begins or who identified themselves there yet as begins were progressively forced into institutional uh, frameworks for example we have several examples in the iberian peninsula but in other places too uh, of women who were a peaceful community of begins with a very long tradition and suddenly they were forced to become nuns and to join one official order or another because 16th century begins are not seen as something nice anymore and they need to be controlled and they need to be confined within the frameworks of official religious orders. They will survive in the Netherlands, for example, in low countries, and we still have cities of ladies, as they call them, uh, Beginash, that are surviving at the last begin, though officially identified as begin, died in 2010. So we're thinking about a very long tradition, but in most of Europe, begins are forced into institutional frameworks. And that's the difference that when you look at female mystics, you will probably be looking at some sort of nun or some son of female religious, women religious, woman religious, sorry, that belongs to some sort of approved uh, community. And that's the great difference mm-hmm. with the middle ages. Ah, okay. And then you get all of these nuns uh, whose like, corpses have been preserved in a church. For example, that, that's that, one of that the options. Kind of yeah, if you become a saint, that's one of the options. So the title of this podcast is Euro Trash, mm-hmm. which means I have to ask you something a little bit more trashy at okay. the end. Sure. So I'm from Eastern Europe originally. I'm from Slovenia. Okay. And I'm basically like an Eastern European grandma in the sense that I'm super superstitious. I believe oh. in all of these like kind of omens and stuff. I mean, okay. it's battling with my rational side, of course. But I'm into Zodiac, I'm, you know, black cat passing. I'm not going to go there and stuff. And I'm also into um, Tarot a little bit. Oh. All right. I love it. I'm not very good at it, but I'm still learning. So I wanted to ask you, if I did that in the Middle Ages, if people knew that I'm doing a little bit of fortune telling on the side with my deck of Tarot cards, would I be in any sort of trouble? Since you brought the Tarot up, one of the, I don't know if you can look for one of the major arcanes, the mm-hmm. priestess. I don't know if in yes, the version you have, is, is she called the priestess or is she called the popess? Well, I have the English desk, uh, deck. Uh, and desk. is she called uh, the so priestess? She's called the priestess, yeah. So uh, we have a great example of the popess that then became the priestess because, of course, it's less controversial. 
priestess than Pope. Uh, so this right? card was, was originally called the Pope. We have examples of 15th century tarot cards that are have a Pope okay. in it. And I, I mean, I cannot show you an image, but I can send it to you if you want. Right. One of them is probably inspired in a female, mm, I wouldn't say visionary, but a very spiritually remarkable figure of late 13th century Italy. Well, she was originally from Bohemia, but she ended up in Milan, around Milan. She died as a saint and had a huge following. And her followers claimed that she was the incarnation of the Holy Spirit. And the thing is that a whole cult developed around her and they ended up in front of the Inquisitor. But one of the interesting things about this group, they are called the Guglielmites because this woman was called Guglielma of Bohemia, was that they thought that since the Holy Spirit was a woman, the Pope could not be a man. So they would need a popess. And one of uh, the leaders of the movement was a woman called Maifreda, who was her follower, and she was appointed or elected as a uh, popus of the movement, which obviously was a problem for inquisitors, and you can imagine oh, that how sounds this... pretty cheeky for the period. Yeah. yeah. And also, she basically celebrated mass and consecrated the host, so the full-on priestly office. And uh, basically, she's supposed to be the inspiration for the popus, for the popus, because uh, we have this amazing tarot deck, which is called a uh, Visconti. I forgot on it's it's two last names, and the first one is Visconti because she was connected to the Visconti family. And when one of her relatives, a century later, decided to get married, they got as a wedding present this tarot deck, which was uh, beautifully uh, painted. So this is to say that no, tarot was not a problem in the Middle Ages. It's a very uh, long-winded answer, but basically it's to show you how it was actually a thing that was very much connected to the circles of power and it had no uh, bearing whatsoever. So you would not have been burned at the stake for using the tarot. After deck. this conversation, I feel like uh, you know the, the Middle Ages were quite more chill than I anticipated in oh, the yes, beginning. Oh yes, they were. And quite less dark. <laughs> yes, we definitely broke some stereotypes. Um, this was such an amazing conversation. Um, where can people find more about your work? Oh, well, I, I'm i all over the website and all over the web, and I will be more there because I'm basically developing the website for the Project Literati, uh, and it will be on soon in a couple months. So I'm, I'm very excited about that. But basically, I, I usually tweet about everything I'm doing. So you can find me on Twitter. And so, you also said yes. at the beginning that you're finishing a book, I believe, right? Yes, Networks of Defiance. That will be out next year, hopefully. Okay, this was really so, so cool. So awesome. Um, and, and I hope we can do it uh, again sometime in the future. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, again, thank you so much. Thanks for having me. I had a great time. Likewise.